couple of weeks ago, Paisley and I went to Plano, Texas for a high school reunion for her. Paisley grew up in Plano. She went to a large Texas high school. Things in Texas are bigger, friends. Things in Dallas are huge. Football was a big deal in Texas and at her high school. Think Friday Night Lights, if you've seen the movie or TV show. Well, on a Friday night, we got to go to her former high school football game. And compared to what I was used to growing up in Georgia, everything about the experience was just big. It was well-organized. It was spirited. I think that those players probably could have beat some colleges. It felt more like a small college than a high school. One of the reasons that we were there, really the main highlight for Paisley in particular, was to see the marching band. Because Paisley had played in this marching band. It was a really uh, huge part of her high school experience. And so it was good for me to be there and to see that. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, They were a very good band. They were very big. They were very talented. They added a lot to the experience. They were on one side of the stadium, and uh, the other team, who actually ended up winning the game, uh, drove down the field, and they were sort of in scoring position over here, and we were right next to them. I could kind of see the antics of the band, and so they piped up on this incredibly loud song trying to distract the other team. I don't think it worked, but I loved (laughs) the spirit involved. Well, because we were sitting right there, I, I got to see all what was happening, and I got to see who the band director was. And he would stand up and he would kind of announce, okay, here's the next song and here's what we're going to do. When it came to halftime, though, something interesting happened. The band went down on the field for their big performance. But the band director, he came way up into the stands, way up at the top near where we were. Down on the field, the band was doing a great job. This is powerful music, perfectly timed steps, marching all together. It's quite amazing to see. And they were being directed by the drum majors, people in the uniform, students who stood up on the platforms and directed and helped people keep the beat. Now imagine for a moment that we actually came into the stadium at halftime uh, just to see the band perform. I would have had no idea who the band director was. And if someone had asked me, who's coordinating all this? I would have said, well, looks like those people, the, the two drum majors are. I wouldn't even know it was called drum majors. I had to ask Paisley. But they're the ones wearing the snazzy outfit. They're the ones standing on the platforms, waving their arms around. Everyone seems to be watching them. It looks like they're the ones in control. I would have had no way of knowing that the person who was truly in charge, who had planned all this, who had coordinated all of those steps, was sitting just down the row, behind the scenes, subtly yet powerfully overseeing this dynamic scene unfolding before me. Well, last Sunday, we began a sermon series in the book of Daniel. And if you missed that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to it. It's on our website. It's called Stories of Hope and Wisdom. It's the beginning of a series, and so it's always an important one to ground us in going forward. Last week, we considered how helpful it is when we find ourselves in a difficult part of our personal stories or our cultural stories to look back at the old stories of the people of God and find hope and encouragement and wisdom. Daniel is one of those stories. It's actually six stories and five apocalyptic visions all written down for one purpose, 
to encourage the people of God. One of the overarching themes of the book is that God is sovereign. Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman says it like this, In spite of present appearances, God is in control. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. He is sovereign over both the intimate, small details of people's lives and the great events of world history. And as we remember that, and as we uh, bring that to our imagination and our thinking, it is a great source of hope. But here's the thing about God's sovereignty. The casual observer probably won't notice it. If a person had visited Babylon at the time when Daniel and his friends were living there, their conclusion would probably have been, well, Nebuchadnezzar is in charge. He's the king after all. The Babylonians are running the show. The Israelites, like Daniel and his friends, they're totally at their disposal. Their lives are controlled and their steps are planned by this pagan king. That would have been the most obvious conclusion. But it would be the wrong one. Because the book of Daniel, over and over, shows us not only that God is present with his people, but that he's actually the one in charge, both of the little details in their lives and the great sweep of history. At best, the rulers of their day that seem to be in charge are like drum majors, under his direction, carrying out his sovereign will, even if they don't realize it. Whenever he desires, God is fully capable of bringing them down off of his platform, which he does over and over and over again, and replacing them with someone else. Today we're going to look at chapter 1. And in this opening chapter, the narrator lays out this theme of God's sovereignty right from the get-go. Although it seems that Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter is calling the shots, we see how God powerfully yet subtly is really in charge. And we see this through these three times that we're told that God gives something. In each of these occurrences, we see that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. And so this morning, I want to walk through these three examples of God giving something and make some observations of how this draws us in to his sovereignty. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So from this verse, if we just stopped right there, it seems like there's two people in charge. You have Jehoiakim, he's king over Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar, king of ba Babylon, who seems to have the upper hand. He's besieging Jerusalem. From verse 1, it appears that these are the only actors. Two kings, two countries, Babylon coming out on top. Verse 1 is bare history what any casual observer would conclude. Two kings, two countries, one beats the other. But then we come to verse 2, our first example of how God gives. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So the Lord really gives two things. He gives Jehoiakim, the king, and he gives some of the vessels of his own temple into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't realize this, right? Along with any other casual observer, he thinks that he's one. He thinks he's in control. And if we need a picture into his mindset, we read the rest of verse 2, where Nebuchadnezzar brings these sacred vessels from Yahweh's temple back to Babylon, and he places them in the temple to his own God. Why does he do this? Well, this is an ancient version of the touchdown dance. This is Cam Newton in the end zone doing the Superman thing, which he's maybe not doing as much lately. It's Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, I just beat you. So I'm going to celebrate in front of you. I'm going to rub it in your face by taking your God's holy things and putting it in the temple of my God because my God is stronger than your God who just got beat. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in charge. But what we know from verse 2 is that God gave both his king and his vessels into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. God's in control. God's doing the giving. Now, we know more from the story of why God did this. He told the people for a long time that if you don't obey my covenant, if you go off and worship other gods, which they continue to do, you will lose your land. And they did, and they did. And God used Nebuchadnezzar, really just as a pawn, to come and to bring judgment on the people of God. But Nebuchadnezzar, he's not going to get off scot-free. He's going to endure God's judgment as well. So God's using him as this instrument of judgment. The other thing I want you to notice, and just to remember, just to tuck away in your mind, is these vessels. They're, they're going to go away for a while, but they're going to pop back up in chapter 5, just before God's great act of judgment on the Babylonians. Well, it turns out that Nebuchadnezzar brought home more than just vessels. The Babylonian strategy for conquering another nation was not only to destroy their armies and their strongholds and to take their stuff, but also to deport some of their people. But they were strategic about this. They wanted to bring home to Babylon the best and the brightest. Sometimes they would pick the future leaders. Not only would this leave Israel weaker, more dependent on Babylon, but it would also enrich their own society. Babylon was becoming a great empire. They needed help. They needed administrative types of leaders. And so they would take um, Israel's best and brightest and they would enroll them in a three-year training program. And over these years, uh, the bright young leaders would be given new names, proper Babylonian names related to their own gods. They would be trained in the literature and the language of Babylonian culture. They would receive their food and wine from the king's table not meaning that they would eat with him, but just that they were dependent on the state for provision. Well, in verse 6, we learn four of these young men who were enrolled in this involuntary training program, you might call it. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all exiles from Judah, all of them young men, probably with noble blood. They were talented. They were good-looking. All of them had been voted by their classmates as most likely to achieve great things, but no one expected those great things to happen in a pagan city. We don't know what was going on inside of these young men. 
we see their faith play out as the stories unfold, but I imagine it was pretty traumatizing to be taken from your land, probably taken from friends and family, and forced to serve this pagan king in a foreign city. Each of their names had deep meaning, as names did back then. Each of their names were related to the God Yahweh, their God, the covenant God. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, Yahweh is a helper. But their new masters didn't have any use for the names of a defeated God. Those identities and that God was a thing of the past, or so they thought. And so they each got a new Babylonian name related to a pagan god. Daniel was Belteshazzar. The other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Of course, my dad used to say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibet you go. <laughs> Once again, if we were there, if we were just a casual observer, the only logical conclusion would be, Babylon's in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is dictating every little event in these people's lives. These young men, they're totally dependent on him. They've gotten new names. He controls their fate even their food, they have to rely on him for their daily portion. But once again, we see evidence that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. Verse 8. We learn that Daniel, he resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he was given. It's a strong word, resolved. It literally is set his heart. It's an expression of his faith coming through. And so as part of this desire to resist, Daniel approaches his immediate supervisor, the chief of the eunuchs, and he asks for permission not to defile himself by eating the food. And in response to this request, we see the second example of God giving something. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. God gave favor to Daniel through this pagan official. And this is really important because Daniel's request could have instantly got him in trouble. Could have gotten him kicked out of the program. Maybe it could have cost him uh, jail time or even his life. But God's gift of favor prevented this. The chief of eunuchs, he's compassionate towards Daniel. But he's still not inclined to grant the request because he's scared of the king. He thinks that if he gives Daniel what he wants, that Daniel's appearance, that his strength will, will just kind of wither away and then people will start asking questions and they'll come and they'll say, what did you do? And the king would have his head. You see the courage of Daniel being contrasted with the fear of this eunuch. But Daniel is still not dissuaded acting on the favor that God's given, he tries another plan. This time he goes to another official, the steward, the one really put in charge of the food, and he says, let's just put this to a test. Daniel's very wise about this. He says, well, just give my friends and me only the vegetables and water for 10 days, and then compare, and see if our appearance looks better than the other youths who are eating the richer food of the king's table and the wine. You be the judge. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say this, but I think it's fair to conclude that this is another example of God's favor because the steward agrees to the plan. 
God is opening doors for Daniel. Well, at the end of the 10 days, it's clear that Daniel and his friends actually looked better than the ones who were eating the king's food. And so the steward changes their diets and allows Daniel and his friends not to defile themselves. Now, what we sometimes ask questions about is, well, what was it about eating the king's food that would have been defiling? And we don't actually know. Uh, scholars suggest that it could have been because of Mosaic food laws that they were trying to adhere to, except that those didn't say that you couldn't have wine, so that's not entirely clear. It could have been because the king's food was offered to idols, and that would have made it sacrilegious and defiling for Daniel and his friends to eat. But in the end, I don't think the narrative is as concerned about Daniel's act of faith as it is in God's character. Because what we see is that Daniel and his friends are not dependent on Nebuchadnezzar for their health. It was God, not the king, who made these four young men in better health than the others. But what's so fascinating about it is God seems totally content to allow this act of his sovereignty to operate behind the scenes. Apparently, nobody knows except for the steward and Daniel and his friends that they're eating only vegetables. Their act of resistance and faith was not showy. It was not public, but it clearly demonstrated God's sovereignty. So God has given over Jehoiakim and the temple vessels. He's given favor to Daniel and his friends through these pagan officials. We see our third occurrence of God giving something in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. As the chapter concludes, their training is complete, and Daniel and his friends are brought before the king. And the king starts asking them questions. Almost feels like he's testing them. Say, hey, how well did you do in this training program? And in every matter, he finds these young Judeans ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters, the other smart people, the doctors, the lawyers, the, the educated of the day. He says, actually, these guys know more. And we're not told Nebuchadnezzar's response, but I can imagine from his character, he's patting himself on the back. What a great decision I made to bring home the best and the brightest from Israel. Look, look at this training program we have. It is the best in the land. But once again, we the readers know that it was God giving Daniel and his friends all of the learning and skill and wisdom that they needed. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in control. But three times in this chapter, we see that God is quietly yet powerfully in control. He's the one doing the giving. Well, friends, and in difficult moments for us, we tell these old stories not because their situation is the same as ours, but because the same God who sovereignly cared for them in their trials cares for us in ours. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In spite of our present appearances, God is still in control. But we're in a time, aren't we, culturally, where things feel chaotic. It's a lot of rapid change going on and it doesn't all feel good. Politically, it feels like we've entered an episode of the Twilight Zone. 
things keep getting weirder and weirder and more and more discouraging. And the church in our culture is facing pressures that we haven't seen in many generations. That's the big scene, the story that we're all living in in some part or another, but then we each have our own individual stories, our personal lives, the details that we're facing, the choices that are hard for us, those moments where we need to be reminded that God is in control. So this morning I want to offer some application for us in light of what we see in Daniel and these three examples of God giving. To do this, I want to reintroduce the slide that I used last week. If you could throw that up there, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> we didn't plan that. Thanks, Daniel. Any Meshachs out there? Living faithfully in the world, a balancing act. Some of you recognize this from the email or um, from last week. Basically, I introduced this last week. Is, is This is how um, we're, we're called to live in the world. Now let me explain a little bit. This is a seesaw. And in the middle, where you see resist and engage, that's where we're called to live as Christians as the church. And you see it both in Scripture, Old Testament and New. We, on the one hand, have this call to resist the influence of the world to pursue holiness. We're living out in the world. We know that, but we can't be conformed to it. And so over and over, we're told, don't be like that. Don't conform to it. Don't fall in love with the world. You have to resist and stay holy. But at the same time, we're called to engage. Jeremiah 29, we have this letter written really from God to the exiles, people like Daniel and his friends, that says, seek the shalom, seek the well-being of the city to which I've called you. Yeah, I know it's pagan. Yeah, I know it's secular, but seek it out. Pray for it. You want to see it flourish. And so that's our mission. And so what we have to do as Christians is to do this balancing act, equal weight distributed on these two. And if we get out of whack with that, we put too much weight on one side of the holiness, we lighten up on the mission, then we're going to withdraw from culture in any number of ways. We're going to lose the mission. But on the other hand, if we kind of lighten up on the holiness thing and the truth, whatever, well, let's just go out and love people, let's just go out and be all about mission, forget holiness, then we're going to assimilate. We're actually going to become indistinguishable from the culture, lose our holiness, actually lose the mission at the same time. So we talked about that last week. We're called to uh, stay in the middle to balance between those two things. This is the same balancing act that we see Daniel and his friends doing in this chapter and other chapters. But what we see here is that they don't do it alone. In chapter 1, over and over, God sovereignly helps them do it. And he helps the same for us. Let me give us three applications first application, God has given us into this moment. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, no matter how bad it is, no matter how much we don't want to be here, God is present now. God can work here. God has sovereignly ordained that we be in this moment. Now I know you can say, but, but there's so many bad circumstances that has led us into this moment. True, it doesn't mean that God approves of every evil thing, but Daniel and his friends ended up in Babylon. How? The result of two evil men. Jehoiakim, terrible king, faithless culture who were under the act of judgment, and then Nebuchadnezzar coming and conquering them. Neither of those men were honoring God. Neither were seeking to do his will. But in the end, it didn't matter. 
because God was going to sovereignly work out his purposes even through the bad choices and corrupt characters of these leaders. He was going to personally care for his own people and see them through their trials. Like some of you, I am deeply disturbed by the seesaw that we find ourselves on today. It's hard to know how to keep our balance, including the seesaw of this election. I wish this wasn't where we were. I wish we were in any other place. Grieves me that we are in this place. But God has sovereignly ordained that we are here in this moment. And he is in control, both over the big stuff of elections and court rulings and Supreme Court justices and the everyday details of our lives. Could I just stop for a moment and to speak into the anxiety that we are as a church right now? Look over scripture, friends, at how many times God has dealt with bad leaders, a lot worse leaders than we're seeing today. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar Augustus, Herod. God's not up there wringing his hands over Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and what do I do? I'm not saying he's celebrating what's happening. I'm sure he is grieved by some of the nastiness that's out there. But he is on his throne. And it is not an accident that we are in this moment, whatever the circumstances that led to it. So let's not give up into anxiety. Let's not give up into bickering with each other. Let's not withdraw or assimilate. This is the moment, as much as we might not like it, that God has called us to be faithful. Second application. The Lord will give us what we need to resist. He'll give us what we need to resist. It is his call to remain holy, to not be corrupted by the world, and he will provide for that. Daniel stepped out in this act of courage and faith and resistance by saying, I will not defile myself with this food. We can certainly learn from Daniel's courage. But it was God who met Daniel. It's God who gave him the courage to begin with, but it's God who gave him the favor in order that he might not have to compromise. It's God who calls us to be holy. And what he calls us to do, he will provide for. So whatever it is that we need to resist the world, he will give us. May look different than Daniel. Probably will look different than Daniel. Probably not going to do with diet. It might involve giving us favor with a pagan official. It might involve establishing certain laws that safeguard religious freedom. That's a growing concern for many Christians as culture changes. But it might not involve favor. It might not involve laws being made that go our way. Instead, God may choose to allow us to be persecuted. And then he may rescue us from that persecution. Later in the story of Daniel, that's what happens. He ends up in a lion's den, his friends up in a fiery furnace, almost at their death, and then God rescues them. But he might not even rescue us from death. Plenty of Christians throughout history and around the world today God is not rescuing them from that moment that takes their life, but he is, through death, bringing them out of that. And he's honoring them for giving up their lives. We don't know how he's going to provide for us, but we can be confident that God will give us what we need, when we need it, in order to resist. I think one of the things we need the most right now is just wisdom on where to resist and how to do it well. Daniel didn't resist everything. 
He didn't resist his pagan name. I'm sure that was a big thing put on top of him. I'm not saying he called himself that, but he didn't make this big show of, I'm not going to be Daniel, I, you know, or I'm not going to be Belteshazzar, I'm going to be Daniel. He didn't resist, resist serving a pagan king. He didn't resist learning the language and the literature of a pagan culture. I'm sure there was almost all that stuff went against his worldview, but that's not where he chose to resist. Instead, he chose to resist on this diet thing, and we're not entirely sure why. And even when he did it, it wasn't showy. It was quiet. It was God-honoring. It was shrewd. And so God will give us. He'll show us how, and then he'll provide for the ways that we need to resist and pursue holiness. Third and final application. God will give us what we need to engage. Daniel and his three friends resisted, but they also engaged. They did so by learning the stories and the language of the culture where God had placed them. They didn't say, that's secular, we're not going to touch it. They engaged, they learned, and they served. A very evil man. And God provided what they needed, the learning, the skill, the understanding. Verse 17, we see that Daniel had this special understanding and vision and dreams that God would give him. And as the story unfolds, we see how that's the way that, that he seeks the shalom of the city by having this relationship with the king and saying, here's what God is saying. You've had this dream. You don't know what it means. You have this fear. You have this concern. I'm going to speak into it. Friends, our culture has the same thing today. We have hope and dreams. We have longing and fears. And as people talk, if we listen, we can hear it. We can hear what they're dreaming about, what they're afraid of. We can also hear it through the artifacts of our culture, the things we produce, like movies and TV shows and music and art and literature. Even politicians are a type of cultural artifact. They're reflecting something of what the general populace is feeling and thinking and hoping for and afraid of. And so as we listen in, we can learn these things, and then with the wisdom that God provides, we can speak into it. We can interpret it. You know, I never would have known that the band director was sitting just down the way from me. I was in the presence of the guy who was in charge, the one who was orchestrating all that I could see, planning it out in advance. I never would have known that except that it was revealed to me beforehand. I knew his identity, and so I knew to look for him. I recognized him. The book of Daniel is revealing to us that God is in our midst. It's showing us what he's like and what his character is so that when he works in our world and in our lives, we can recognize him and we can know with confidence that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. Let's pray.